I'm Helen Skelton, and in this series, we'll find out how you're a part of one of the most incredible revolutions in human history. Welcome to the Clean Energy Revolution. I'll be taking you on a journey into the future of how the world will be powered in the next 30 years as we work towards the target of net zero carbon emissions. Now, this series of podcasts is all about the role energy is playing in tackling the negative effects of climate change. The energy we use in our homes, offices, factories, shops, schools, hospitals, transport. The energy we use to fuel our everyday life. We'll start our series with a look at what the term net zero actually means and why it's so important to you, me and the energy we use in homes, transport, businesses and beyond. I'll be finding out how our energy system is working at the moment. We'll hear about some of the new tech being developed to make this clean and we'll go behind the scenes at the control room where the UK's energy demand is balanced second by second. And finally, I'll be joined in the studio for a discussion on why it's so important to make this energy revolution fair for everyone. But first, let's talk about why 2021 might just be the most important year ever for tackling climate change. In November, COP26, the United Nations Global Climate Change Conference takes place in Glasgow, where nations of the world will be coming together to agree new actions to cut global carbon emissions. The world needs to halve emissions by 2030 to stay on track to avoid the worst effects of climate change. So those actions will be critical. Duncan Burt is National Grid's Director for COP26 and Responsible Business. He joins me now to talk a little bit about why our energy plays such a vital role in our climate future and why this year's COP26 climate event is so important. Duncan, let's start with the basics. How does the energy system in the UK work? Basically, at the moment, you and I at home, waking up, having a cup of tea, getting in our cars, going to the shops, about 20% of that energy comes from electricity. About half, nearly half goes to heat your home. And then the rest of it is used in the petrol, in the car you drive or the bus that you get on or the train that you ride on. And then in the shops and businesses that you use it. In the future, all of that power needs to be low carbon or zero carbon. Where is it at the minute in terms of us getting to zero carbon? What is the balance? How much comes from fossil fuels? Well, the UK is about halfway to zero carbon from from its targets in 1990 that we set in the 90s. So we're making not bad progress, but so far most of that progress has been made through the electricity grid by getting coal and other fossil fuels off the power grid and changing it for nuclear, for for very low carbon fuels and renewables, mainly renewables. So nuclear and renewables provide how much of our electricity at the minute? Uh, Just over 50%. And how easy is it going to be to get that to 100? (laughs) We'll see the first few hours and days without any fossil fuels by 2025, we think, in the UK. But the UK is like the fastest decarbonising major economy in the world at the moment. We have a great story to tell us to what's happening here. And we will be substantially there on the electricity grid somewhere between 2030 and 2035. Uh, wind really is now the backbone of the UK electricity grid. It is the major source of power in the UK and will only grow over the next 10, 15 years. People know that we need to tackle climate change, yet when we talk about climate change, you know, we talk about recycling and not using planes. How important 
is the role of energy in tackling climate change? It's absolutely the main story. Over the next 10 years to fight climate change, if you're thinking about getting a car, the next thing you should do is get an EV. And that's a huge chunk of your own carbon emissions gone. In about five or 10 years time, people will start talking a lot more about low carbon heating and zero carbon heating. And when they do that, you should choose a low carbon heating system. And if you did those things, then we will get to zero carbon, we will fight climate change. I think people do care about climate change. Sustainability is important to them. But I suspect there's a lot of people who have busy lives and get a bit overwhelmed by it all. And terms get bandied around that it's assumed we know and people don't know what it means. Can you explain what net zero means in simple terms? Net zero means that we aren't producing any more greenhouse gases than we're taking away. So the net means that we might still be producing a little bit, but we're also removing some of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere at the same time. When we get to that net zero position, that means that we stopped making climate change worse. Like we'll see the first hours of the power grid operating at zero carbon by 2025. The UK as a whole probably won't get there until quite close to 2050 because We've got to change our heating, everyone's got to change their car, and we've got to do lots of other things to improve the ecosystem and sustainability of farmland before 2050. In 2015, governments around the world committed to trying to limit the average global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. That was the Paris Agreement. What are the global commitments to addressing climate change that we should know about now? Paris completely changed the global government conversation by saying, we're not going to make laws that force everyone to do it. We're just going to sit down and everyone's going to volunteer how much they can do. And then every five years, we want you to come back and commit to doing a bit more. And so Glasgow, the big COP conference this year, is happening five years after Paris. And the challenge is for all countries to redeclare a higher level of commitment ahead of Glasgow. And that's the most important thing. Yeah? So that's Brazil, that's Indonesia, that's the United States, it's China, it's everybody coming back and going, OK, yeah, we said we would cut 20% by 2030 or 30% by 2035. We're now going to do 40, 50, 60, getting towards 100% by 2050. And why is energy so high on that agenda? Because by the time we get to 2050, that will account for about 70 to 80 percent of all of the decarbonisation effort globally. The rest of it is saving and restoring rainforests and woodland, improving farmland, you know, getting to more sustainable agriculture. But the vast bulk of our carbon emissions come from energy, and therefore we need to get the carbon dioxide out of all of those uses of energy. It makes a big difference that you've now got China on a 2060 commitment to, to net zero. And you've got the US saying that it wants its power grid to be carbon neutral by 2035. So these are huge, huge global trends of which the UK is a small but really, really important part. Where does the US stand in that then? With the new Biden administration in the US now, we're seeing the US go from a slight laggard in this, maybe three, five years behind what it was doing, to now really rapidly accelerating. And when the US accelerates at something, it really accelerates. The amount of government money, the amount of innovation, the incredible entrepreneurialism that we see in the United States comes full force at this global warming challenge with green tech. National Grid has a big supply business out on the east coast of the US, so we have a big role to play in supporting this. How is National Grid innovating to make clean energy a reality? 
We've got a whole range of things. In the UK, we've got the electricity system operator, the ESO, who's doing a whole load of world-leading technology deployment so that by 2025, it can operate the power grid in the UK without any fossil fuels at all, which will be a world first, we think, certainly for a big power grid. Uh, we're helping develop big new industrial clusters up and down the east coast of England that will support a new hydrogen economy and will allow really hard areas of industry to be decarbonized. And we're deploying lots of technology onto our grids in the UK and onto our networks in the US to help reduce its current carbon emissions in the future. And there's loads more going on in addition to those examples, which we'll find out more about over the course of this podcast series. Thank you, Duncan. We will be back with you later in this episode. First, though, a little groundwork into how our energy system works. The UK's electricity system is operated by a central control room. It balances supply and demand minute by minute, second by second. The gas system also has a separate control centre, but today we're going to talk about electricity. We're getting a peek into the job of the ESO control room in Walkingham. ESO stands for Electricity System Operator. I'm Marianne Fernley. I work in the Electricity National Control Centre and I'm a Transmission Security Manager. Whilst renewable energy generators make electricity and distributors help supply it to homes and businesses, the National Grid owns the wires that get it from the sea, turbine or storage to the local networks. And with an ambition to be able to operate an electricity system with no carbon at all by 2025, the ESO is facing a brand new set of challenges from a new kind of system. There are 34 native languages spoken in this control room. The talented people here come from all sorts of backgrounds, working together to do one of the most important jobs in the country. Let's take a listen. We have a huge responsibility to make sure that we look after that transmission network for all, which is the overhead lines and the cables that carry the power from your power sources, your generators, through to your demand sources. The frequency has to be maintained at 50 hertz. As the demand goes up and down, you have to match that generation with that demand. The amount of generation output is meeting people's need for electricity. So when you turn on a light and you use electricity to, to power that light or you turn your kettles on, whatever is using electricity within your household and in industry, we provide power sources to supply that demand. And it's not just you, it's across the whole nation. Forecasting demand is quite an art and we do that by looking at the weather. Temperature is really, really important. So it's the observed temperature, the actual temperature, but also the effective temperature. When you've got wind chill, it's gonna feel cooler than it actually is. When it's hot, the buildings retain the heat. And so there'll be a lagging heating effect later on in the day, say. We also look at how bright the, the day is, how much cloud cover there is, how much sun is, is penetrating through. A degree centigrade difference is equivalent of 500 megawatts, so it's like a one generator. 
Once you've established how much the volume is throughout the 24 hours, that's your demand trend. That's all about people's behaviour. So typically in the morning on a weekday, people go to work. And so the rise in demand is quite steep from six o'clock through till nine, ten o'clock. But on a Sunday morning, the profile for the morning is very different because people will get up from eight o'clock and gradually through the morning to lunchtime and beyond. We know exactly what you're doing from the demand that we can see. The demand forecasters have a, a huge database that contains all the historic demand and they will key in the variables that I've talked about. But as a strategy manager, we continue that process. So I would need to adjust that demand forecast accordingly to reflect real-time weather patterns. It's fascinating. We're not robots. We don't get it right all the time. The weather, there's so many variables in the weather forecast. When a storm goes across the network and there's lightning and there's faults happening here, there and everywhere, you've got to have your eyes peeled, you've got to use your computer systems that are telling you what's happening on the real-time system and make sure the network runs as it should do. So that's the best bit of the, of the whole experience. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Marianne. It is incredible to think that it's possible to predict our behaviour and energy use and that every second of the national need for power is being balanced by that system. Now, I want to introduce Julian Leslie. Julian is the ESO's chief engineer. He's overseeing the journey to make Britain's electricity system completely zero carbon in the next four years. First of all, Julian, are you mad? That's quite ambitious, isn't it? It is ambitious to, to operate the system of zero carbon in the next four years. But don't forget that we're only talking about for an hour or maybe a couple of hours at first. So it'll be like the first coal-free hour that we had, then the first coal-free day, then weekend, and then week. So it'll gradually build up over time. But yes, by 2025, we want to be able to have that first hour where we're operating carbon-free. We need to be working with the industry, understanding where consumer behavior is going to go and the products and devices in people's homes and how our relationship with electricity is going to change over the next 10 to 15 years. We need to be doing that now because these things take time to build and to bring to market. Now, Julian, I'm assured you are amazing at making physics and engineering understandable. Can you tell me why shifting to renewably sourced electricity is one of the most important ways we can move closer to net zero? So when we've operated a power system in the past, we've had large coal and gas-fired power plants. And with, with that whole mechanics of the things rotating at high speed allow you to operate a, a, a power system. As we move to solar and wind generation, you don't have the same sort of large rotating bits of metal in the power plant. And therefore, that means as we as system operators have a very different way to think about how we operate the system. So Julian, what are the key challenges then in operating the grid at zero carbon? I mean, really, there's five key technical challenges to operate in the grid at zero carbon. The first one of those is inertia. The second is frequency management, voltage control, thermal management of flows on the system. And then finally, if worse was to happen, how you restore the system from a complete and utter shutdown. And what is a thermal flow? So a thermal flow is the, the maximum capacity of power that can flow through a piece of equipment. If you imagine 
your plug socket in your home has got a 13 amp fuse in it or a five amp fuse in it. And when the power flow gets greater than that, the fuse will blow. But we have the same on the electricity transmission system that everything has a maximum power flow. And what we need to do is make sure that the thermal flows across the network are always within the, the physical limits of that equipment. What do you mean by inertia? So inertia is the way that the system can absorb shocks. So there's two ways you can think of inertia. One is like a children's spinning top. If you remember when you spin the thing and it gets up to speed and it starts to hum and make a noise, and when you take your hand off, the spinning top keeps running for a period of time. So that's inertia. The other way to look at inertia is it's like a shock absorber on a car. And the more inertia you've got, the bigger the pothole you can withstand without shaking yourself to bits in the car. And as we move to a low carbon system, we get less and less inertia, less and less suspension on your car and the, and the ride gets a bit, a bit more wobbly. But presumably you don't want us to experience it as a consumer, do you? Because by the time it writes itself, we won't notice. Is that right or not? Absolutely. So there should be no impact to the consumer whatsoever. And the voltage you receive, the frequency of the power supply coming out of your plug socket will be as it is today. We've heard a bit about how the energy system works and, and how it needs to change as we move towards zero carbon sources. But what does it actually mean for the future of the system? I know you've touched on it there, but how will you operate it going forward? I mean, there's many different ways the power system operation is going to have to change. I think one of the most fundamental ones is that historically we've always dispatched the generation to meet the demand because it's the generation that has been the controllable output because the more fuel you put in the more generation you get out and the demand has been driven by you waking up in the morning having a shower or whatever else as we move to the future though it's going to be the demand that is now controllable so the generation is going to be controlled by the wind and the sun which we don't have control over but the energy you use in your home will be controlled it could be with charging your vehicle on the drive it could be got a battery in your loft or in your garage There'll be some transmission, electricity, sort of grid-scale storage as well, the way we can just pull down on that power when it's needed. So I think it's going to be a big transformational shift. Let's talk about innovation, because obviously renewable electricity is playing a massive part in economic innovation. There's a lot of technical innovations taking place as well, aren't there? There are. I mean, the big innovations are the way that the electricity is produced in the first place. So the scale of offshore wind and the innovation around building bigger and, and more efficient turbines. I mean, I was reading the other day, there's going to be a 14 megawatt wind turbine that's going to be installed offshore in one of the latest projects. And when you think a few years ago, the biggest was probably four or five megawatt turbine. As far as we're concerned in the electricity system operator, we, are, we see lots of innovation in the marketplace because what we're doing is that we're defining these technical needs for the future. And we should be really proud of the efforts we're making here in GB that we are leading the world in many of these aspects. Let's hear a bit more about one of those new technologies Julian was just talking about. This particular innovation is proving that amazing technology can be designed, built, tested and implemented with impressive pace. General Electric Power Conversion's Rotating Stabiliser is designed to stabilise electricity fluctuations on the grid. It's a huge turbine-like structure and this is being developed by Statcraft and Sheffield Forgemasters in Rugby. As Julia mentioned, renewable sources of electricity can make for variations in this carefully balanced system. Our system in the UK is pretty small compared to grids across much larger areas. This means that those variations can have a much bigger impact. And that's why the rotating stabiliser has been created and manufactured to help. 
well, to stabilise this and make our renewable energy transition even smoother. Here's how it works. Hi, I'm Guy Nicholson, Head of Grid Integration at Statcraft. Uh, Statcraft is Europe's largest renewable energy generator and my role there is integrating renewables into the grid. A rotating stabiliser is an electrical machine, a machine spinning on the grid, but it's a huge machine. It's two metres wide, it's four metres in diameter and it weighs 200 tonnes and it's about providing stability to the grid. So as we get more renewables on the grid, what we're doing is we're turning off coal stations, we're turning off gas stations, and they provide the inertia. So when we have a fault on the grid, when we have a big loss of infeed, so we have a power station trips or an interconnector trips, we suddenly lose a lot of power being fed into the grid. And that means the frequency will fall, and the grid's in imbalance. And what this rotating mass does, this synchronous machine, it provides this massive inertia. It slows down that change of, of frequency. So when the trip happens, the frequency falls, but not as quick. And it allows National Grid and other power stations and other projects to deliver power into the grid to make up the shortfall. The batteries kick in, and this rotating mesh stabilizer allows time for that to happen, crucial time in order that the whole grid doesn't black out. My name's Thomas Mayer-Maguire. I'm the engineering projects leader for Rotating Machines Rugby, uh, looking after the synchronous induction machines design team. During the, uh, the build and construction of the rotating stabiliser, not only has it been a fantastic opportunity for the staff in rugby, but also it's created a lot of training opportunities. It's been very beneficial to the local community in rugby. We've taken on a number of apprentices who are working on the, on the project, learning those skills and making sure that those skills are being passed down to the next generation. So this uh, rotating stabiliser and its uh, partner, there's two of them, are being deployed in Keith in Moray in Scotland, which is obviously a hotbed for renewable development and lots of wind energy up there. It's been really, I think, welcomed by the local community. This, this machine going through the streets when it's delivered is a phenomenal sight. It's a, it's a phenomenal bit of engineering just to get it to site because it weighs so much and we have a lot of local people involved. It's obviously specialists in terms of providing services as well as supplying labour to build the project. Hi, my name is Jonathan Nutt. I've been the lead manufacturing engineer building the Statcraft rotor. Effectively, at a very high level, we have a 12-pole magnet. So. You could pick up a standard magnet in the classroom that would have a red end and a blue end. Uh, that would be a single pole. This is effectively 12 very large magnets made of copper rather than magnetic material that spin relatively fast and then can be held at that synchronous speed for however long it needs to until such a fault appears on the grid that it then needs to use some of that mechanical inertia to dump power back by effectively slowly reducing its speed and providing more power back to the grid to ride through those faults without the negative downside of taking away those massive turbines from the power stations. What we've got here is a machine that can provide the inertia without having to provide power as well. And that allows National Grid to run the power system with more renewables. So we're saving carbon because we're not turning on coal and gas stations. And we're also saving consumers money because that is a very expensive process to turn on those power stations when they're not needed. So far, we've talked a lot about how we're going to transition to a more sustainable energy network. But why is it so important that it's fair for everyone? And how do we make sure that happens? To talk about how the transition to renewables impacts all of us, 
and raises some tricky questions. I'm joined again by Duncan Burt and Sharon Darcy, Director of Sustainability First. Sharon, let's start with yourself. What does Sustainability First aim to do? Sustainability First is an independent charity and think tank, and we develop practical solutions to improve environmental, social and economic well-being in the energy sector and other utilities like water and communications. You must have some quite emotive conversations with people because you're engaging with communities, but you're also engaging with energy providers, politicians and policy makers. There are a lot of sort of almost conflicting emotions to balance at times, I imagine. Well, that's right. Sustainability is all about balance. So it's how do you balance different needs for both today and tomorrow and for people and planet? whether they're the interests of companies or investors, government actors or NGOs, grassroots community groups, you have to look at what the trade-offs are and where, importantly, where the win-wins are. And covering those common interests is really important when you look at issues like decarbonisation. Because when we're talking about a clean energy future, sort of inevitably, and at this stage in the game, conversation often goes to technology, and it has done in the earlier parts of this podcast. But when we talk about equality and fairness in the UK energy market, I guess it's good to get an overview of what that means. Well, energy is an essential service. So that means it's really important people have access to affordable services, and not just for today, but into the future. And we know with the pandemic, some families and some people up and down the country have really been hit hard. But we also know we need to change the system for the future. And that has risks and opportunities. And one of the risks is we need to ensure that we decarbonise people's homes. So we need to look at how we're going to afford to support people to make that transition. We need to get green jobs in communities, really good jobs, which are going to be long term jobs and are really agents for delivering sort of social change at the local level. Who is going to pay for all of this, Duncan? So the Committee on Climate Change have, have started to look at this. And, and the big technical answer is that a lot of this is about investment now in energy efficiency, in new low carbon heating, in electric vehicles. And those investments now show savings in the long term because it either gets energy use down or it's much more efficient. I think there's real issues about who pays for the energy future and who pays for decarbonisation. Since privatisation of the energy sector, most of the costs have been borne by consumers on consumer bills. As we move towards decarbonisation, but also meeting the costs of climate adaptation, there are going to be increased costs. And we have to say, well, which costs should be borne through the consumer, through the bills? which costs should be borne by taxpayers, which may be more progressive as a way of sort of recouping and reclaiming those costs. So those are real issues that we need to grapple with at a national level. Um, At the same time as Duncan and his team and other colleagues in the energy sector really drive down costs by looking for new new efficiencies, by looking for new technologies and getting behaviour change in the way that we all use energy and think about energy in our daily lives. And talking about past versus future brings us nicely on to social capital. How can National Grid play a role in making sure it's investing fairly to build social capital? There are, as Sharon said, huge opportunities to do with this green industrial revolution. There's a tremendous opportunity for jobs growth and for economic growth, particularly up and down the east coast of the UK and the North Sea with a big rollout of offshore wind. These things are, on the one hand, incredibly exciting, but on the other hand, a real challenge for these communities. So by, you know, by investing in skills, by investing in 
local opportunities so that, so that those local communities can make the most of the jobs and the growth that comes with it. We think we can really, really help create a, a very positive green future for, for those regions. It's really about understanding where those communities are, what are their concerns, what are their needs, what are their priorities. And those will differ up and down the country. And understanding how to engage a diversity of perspectives in ongoing work and building lasting relationships, because this won't be done overnight. And I should declare an interest because when I said to you at the start of this conversation, Sharon, oh, you must deal with a lot of emotional situations. My first job as a BBC journalist was when I was a teenager and it's when they shut down, I'm from Cumbria, and they shut down all the steelworks in West Cumbria and they brought in the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. So that transition from a community that you know made steel and went all over the world to then having this huge big NDA was... Yes, all of the challenges that you talk about are complex ones. A lot is going to change. We've established that. But what do you need to do to make that transition fair, do you think, Duncan? If, you, if you're in Hull today or if you're in Teesside or in Blythe today and you're wondering what this has got to do with you and you can see national grid vans and big trucks going up and down the road and such like, we think that this industrial revolution we're going to has the potential to bring a whole range of jobs and opportunities in a very, very different way to, to lots of bits of the UK. If we get this wrong, that won't happen. If, if we can create the skills and we can get the energy policy right to make sure that, you know, hydrogen comes to Teesside or that we see that real big growth in offshore wind in the North Sea and then leave the communities with the skills and the investment in networks and in you know local infrastructure. I, th- I think diversity and inclusion have to sit at the heart of this. So recognising that different communities come from different perspectives and, different, and there's difference within communities. I mean, we're looking at making sure that when we, when we go in and we do build uh, new pylons or new overhead lines or that we're putting cables in the ground, that we leave those ecosystems there in a much better state than when we found them. Let's work with local communities, let's develop strategies for rewilding, let's see what we can do in and around the region where the electricity network is and make sure we can improve that even more and and create an environment which is not only a little bit better, but a lot better. The next big milestone in the energy transition is what, Duncan? Uh, For us in the UK, it'll be the operation of the network without fossil fuels, which the National Grid ESO has said it'll be ready to do by 2025, which is will be an awesome achievement for the UK. That's the big next milestone for us. Uh, for, for the UK as a whole, it is COP26 uh, this November. Sharon? I think it's the decarbonisation of heat. We really do need to change how we heat our homes. So that's a question of getting rid of gas boilers, moving to electric heat in in many, many cases. And that's a massive behavioural issue. And to make that effective, we need to ensure that the energy efficiency of our housing is vastly improved. We need to retrofit homes with energy efficiency savings and insulation, etc. Get electric heat pumps in homes. Um, and really think about how we do that in a fair way. Duncan, Sharon, thank you very much. That's all we have time for right now, but don't worry if that raised more questions for you than it answered. Hopefully you know a bit more now about how our mysterious energy system works and how it's already changing to move away from fossil fuels to renewable sources of energy. 
As we've heard, there are lots of challenges that a system-wide transition of this scale raises. And the impact upon people, environments and society is as important to consider as the goals we're trying to achieve in the net zero transition. Across the rest of this series, I'm going to be deep diving into the different topics that we've touched upon today. We'll be explaining how the sea can help capture carbon and remove it from the atmosphere. We'll find out how wind turbines work and how clean hydrogen gas could eventually replace more heavy carbon-emitting sources of energy in our homes and industrial processes. Next time, we're starting with something that demands new decisions from all of us in the coming years. Transport. If you drive, electric vehicles are now officially the future for the school run and beyond. But what about heavy goods vehicles, industrial freight and long-distance transport? How will technology and thinking have to change to make those happen using renewable energy resources and where do the opportunities lie? I'm Helen Skelton and I'll be back again in three weeks. Follow this podcast on your favourite app. In the meantime, you can find out more about the National Grid's work toward our clean energy future at nationalgrid.com. Catch you later.